Ollie. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sustainable 172. Welcome yourself, old, to Sustainable 172. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast, isn't we, all? Yes. All about people and the planet and why, despite everything being Norse, we can have a chuckle about it every now and then, yes? Yep. And, um, well, we're still locked down. I am still in beautiful Crystal Palace uh, in my flat, what I can't go out of, except to go out. So I suppose it's not that bad. Um, and you're still in wherever you live, surrounded by infants. Um, but we're making do. We are making do. Oh, as Dame Vera Lynn, Her Majesty the Queen and Boris Johnson would have us do, we are making do. Yes, uh, right. Well, this week we're going to do some banging on for a change. Um, you know, why fix a why broken record yeah. or whatever the phrase is. Uh, we're going to be banging on about something that is probably quite close to a lot of people's hearts at the moment, or at least closer than it's been, which is Auntie, the Beeb, the BBC. Now, if you listen to the babble in another country, you probably also know about the BBC because it's, you know, an international organisation. But it isn't the thing that it is for us over here in Blighty, which is the cultural throbbing heart of our <laughs> civic life. Um, but or, it is, or, it is, depending or, on what's your viewpoint... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> also, a ho- a horrible festing pool of lefties who, you know, eat quinoa and have Brompton bicycles and go on too many holidays. Yeah, or it's a mouthpiece for the uh, cowled by the terrible right-wing government and the right-wing press who won't tell us the truth about climate change and all of that who are basically people have opinions about the bbc and we were going to do an episode about this before christmas and then you know elections and stuff happened and we thought what's it really like like being in a public service broadcaster like the bbc and is any of the stuff that gets leveled at it about how they don't take climate change seriously enough is any of that fair so what did we decide to do about it oh we decided to talk to somebody who knew. Uh, and that is somebody called Richard Black, who, for, well, getting on quarter of a century, worked at the Beeb, worked at the BBC, is a journalist, was a journalist at the BBC, covered climate change and energy and all of that sort of stuff, and told us about it. Yeah, he's not been there for a few years. Uh, he now runs a thing called the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. Um, so all of all of which we're interested in, particularly units. Um, but he has <laughs> seen, he's, he's been there, he's seen it, he's written the stories for year after year about our stuff is getting bad. So we thought we'd ask him all about that. Fascinating chat and we're very, very grateful to Richard for his time. Yes? We. Right, you do the disclaimer. Oh, yeah. I always forget that you no longer have to disclaim. Uh, (laughs) I do work for an environment charity, uh, and these are very much my own views and Dave's views and, of course, Richard's views. Uh, So if you've got any beef with them, don't take it up with the people for whom I work. Take it up with us, direct. Um, Yes. Or just don't. Or, given this is an episode about BBC, submit a complaint which will be processed (laughs) over many years and will go into a very formal uh, complaints procedure and will invariably involve a handbook and ultimately Piers Morgan saying something outrageous. Splendid news. Final thing to note, we recorded this about two weeks ago, so hopefully nothing in it is out of date by the time you listen to it, but do bear that in mind in case anything, in case the world has changed since the end of April when we recorded this, yes? Very good. On with it! This is the BBC Television Service. We now present from Studio A, Alexandra Palace, 
another programme in our series of experimental transmissions in colour. So, hello, Richard. Hi, nice to be with you guys. Hello, thank you very much for virtually coming to speak to us. Uh, thank, you for, thank you for sitting down in your front room. That's right. Where I'd right, be sitting down anyway, I just wouldn't be doing something as pleasant as talking to you guys. <laughs> uh, having a good lockdown? Yeah, so far, good as good as can be expected. You know, what else is one to do? Uh, spending a lot of time on Zoom, uh, sometimes on Microsoft Teams, you know, just for a bit of variety. <laughs> uh, sometimes even make, make the old-fashioned phone call. That's a bit retro, I know, but uh, yeah, it works. <laughs> Very, very good. So thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Uh, we wanted to talk to you. We were going to do this a while ago, weren't we? We first wanted to do this, I think, before Christmas and then like elections mm. got in the way because it turns out everyone was kind of busy. Um, <laughs> remember what everyone was just talking about like general elections and Brexit and things like that? Yeah, Are we even still having this- a Brexit? These sort of uncontroversial things like Brexit, absolutely. Remember when Parliament sat? That was a thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Parliament. No, now you mentioned it, I do recall that, yeah. And MPs could sit yeah. or, or even recline, lie, lie down if they wanted to <laughs> on those lovely green benches. The leader of the House, who I have to say with his body language throughout this evening, has been so contemptuous of this House sit, and of the people. Up, and for the benefit of Hansard... But when we originally were talking about doing this episode, it was when the BBC was getting a proper kicking from just everyone it was around about sort of election time and brexit time and like all of the lefties thought that like laura coonsberg was being propped up by putin and all of the people on the right thought that like it was all a horrible liberal plot and i just kind of thought i i bloody love the bbc me and you were for how long were you at the bbc for good sort of 12 well in in different in different incarnations. So I left a couple of times and went back a couple of times. But if you take date of first joining, joining to date of last leaving, it was pushing 25 years. Wow. Bloody hellfire. So you know mm. about it and presumably like it, but you got out of it. So I just want to kind of ask you, like, what's it like being so your environment correspondent for a lot of that? What's that like at the BBC? What's it like? Yeah, like? Uh, I, had a, I had a very uh, strange career and I actually started as a sound engineer in BBC World Service, which was fascinating. It was like a mini United Nations, broadcasting something like 45 languages um, in those days. And so you'd go and go from recording, uh, you know, if you're lucky, an English language drama to a Hauser news and current affairs programme live. And then if you were lucky, you got something to do like the sports programme on Saturday afternoon. So it was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant time. Uh, and I've been a producer there as well and uh, made science programs um, and and current affairs programs and things yeah um, so being uh, being a science and environment correspondent it, it's um it, it's busy i mean that's the first thing you'd say about it it's there's there's always a lot of news out there that you can cover or not and many people of course want you to cover their particular bit of news and you realise too that you do have a bit of an influence. You know, you 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 you've got, you've got to take the job responsibly, I think, because what what you say can actually have an impact on what happens out there in the real world. So it's a lot of fun at times. It's very busy. Um, you are a little bit in the public uh, eye. Coming back to what you were saying earlier, Dave, about um, you know the BBC at times being really under cosh, and you do get criticised quite a lot. I remember one of my first weeks in this on the environment beat i got accused in the same week of being in the pay of the oil industry and being in the pocket of greenpeace which is quite some juggling act. <laughs> no, no wonder your front room looks so nice that's balance right 
<laughs> we analysed 167 discussions of economics, business and finance on the Today programme's Thought for the Day. In these, 65% expressed a negative opinion on capitalism and markets, whilst just 8% gave any sort of pro-capitalist perspective. Is it the case that like you're, you're always trying to find that balance? We, we always hear about balance, and there's a lot mm. of stuff being talked about how the BBC has to fight for balance. And balance seems to mean annoying people as much as um, as much as anything else. But how does balance actually work in practice when you're covering yeah. say, climate change for the BBC? Yeah, I mean it's it, it's not a unitary concept, and it's not a it's not a strict science. So I mean there are guidelines, and the, and the BBC has what's called an editorial standards department, and there is a whole set of editorial guidelines and standards that you can read on the website but all of them are open to interpretation um, and I think to do it intelligently you have to be quite context specific so if we take the specific area for example when you would put a climate skeptic or a climate denier on on air when you talk to them and get quotes for an article um, there was I mean, first of all, the, the, the sort of degree of settledness of the science has obviously changed over the years. It was a lot less settled. There were a lot more bigger questions 15 years ago than there are than there are now. But also, you had to, in my view, to sort of divvy things up between, in broad sense, between pieces that were about science and pieces that were about politics. Because obviously, you know, someone like, um, you know, Nigel Lawson, for example, has, you know, no scientific chops. And if you're in, doing a piece on science, why? would you talk to them but on the other hand when you've got a group of MPs um, or indeed an American president you know who who, who are uh, overtly climate skeptical and they are part of the political spectrum and you can't really ignore the fact that they're there I don't think so it is subject to interpretation there's no monolithic right answer and you just have to think about it I think every single editorial decision you make you just have to think about it and and if necessary chat it through with your colleagues and try and do something that's not too awful so do you think um, it's it's fair some of the criticism that that people in the climate world have lobbed at the BBC over the years about about kind of getting that balance wrong the whole the whole sort of on the one hand you know ninety seven percent of global scientists say this on the other hand Nigel Lawson still thinks you're wrong um, it like that, that was <laughs> shouty a... bloke in his basement says this yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. yes indeed man yeah. man yeah. terrified of the world outside his front door thinks that's it. right that's um, right that was clearly a kind of point of uh, you know a stick that the, the the climate world used to hit the BBC over the years do you think it's fair that they did that and do you think how have you seen that evolve as well yeah I think there were there were definite incident definitely incidents occurred um, where it was absolutely right that the BBC did get in trouble for it the thing is that the BBC is not a monolithic organisation. There's actually a huge amount of output that the BBC does. You know, you've got all the national TV channels, five national radio channels. Now you've got all the extra radio channels as well. Then you've got local radio, regional TV, the website, which is in itself a diversified thing. So th th there is no monolithic control. And, and individual uh, editors of programmes, so like Today Programme or something, have quite a lot of uh, discretion and say about the choices that they make and so I think if you look at it overall from from my perspective you know generally it always has done a pretty good job and continues to do uh, a pretty good job pretty much better since I left but um, there have been one or two you know high profile incidents of things that clearly have not been very good decisions um, the most recent ones you know involving Nigel Lawson on the Today programme. The problem for the Today programme was not only that Lord Lawson's assertion about global temperatures remaining steady was provably false, 
It was also that a previous interview with him in 2014 was ruled to have given undue weight to his views, again on the subject of climate change. The BBC has admitted breaching editorial guidelines, but said it won't comment because this... Yeah, so remind people about that, because I remember the big hoo-ha about Nigel Lawson being on the Today programme, but what was it got everyone so upset about that? Well, there were two, I suppose, that really stood out. One was 2014, if memory serves me correctly, and the other was 2017. So the, so the 2017 one, I mean, Today had a new editor, Sarah Sands. I doubt that... She, I may be doing her injustice here, but I doubt she'd read uh, when she went in what the editorial guidelines actually said on this and probably hadn't read the big review of science coverage that had been done a few years earlier. And so, obviously, you want a bit of glitz and glam and well-known names in your programme and climate change comes up, so why not get Nigel Lawson on? Uh, it may seem like a reasonable decision until you actually do it and get the <laughs> deluge of criticism and complaints that, that, uh, that come will, your way. He will not so, come on this podcast. Will not come on. <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure about that? I've got an idea for that, which we could we could probe in a minute. To be honest, um, a, a, a lot of it I think is about you know how you cast people. The, the problem is that you know, the BBC and particularly today interview, interviews quite a lot of fairly senior political figures, and it tends to cast them as sort of sages of all wisdom. Yeah. And when you listen to them interviewing someone like, let's say, Sir Malcolm Rifkind about foreign affairs and diplomacy, it kind of works because they, they do have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and it sort of works. But it Lawson isn't that really when it comes to climate change. And so the BBC, I think, sort of, you know... It, <laughs> without probably really thinking about it too much, that, you know, he was cast as a sage rather than, you know, as someone who runs a campaign group. So in that particular interview in 2017, he made, well, I think from memory, about five uh, statements that uh, were either true, uh, sorry, either untrue or, or, or highly contestable. Um, and, you know, so, so there was the barrage of complaints and, and in the end the BBC was uh, was forced to concede. Well, actually one of them, his own uh, lobby group, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, actually um, pointed out the error uh, themselves in that, you know, he, he'd, <laughs> he'd said there'd been a <laughs> the cooling... The minister misspoke. Yeah. Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, that one, because... I, I I sort of wrote about it in, in the in the in the book that I that I wrote uh, the following year on on sort of BBC's uh, on sorry on the UK's um, climate contrarians and for me the people who lost in that interview was were Nigel Lawson and uh, and his and his fellows because you can't put yourself out there as someone who's a sort of impartial arbiter of stuff and then say things that are demonstrably so so incorrect and I think you know five or six years ago. Things were, you know, it, it, it wouldn't quite have panned out like that. But, uh, but I think that was really a shot to the foot, that one. All the same, can I have your assurance, Jim, that first of all there'll be a full public inquiry? Actually, public inquiry might not be The a minister bad idea. was about to say there's absolutely no need for a public inquiry. <laughs> the matter has been fully investigated already and a report will be issued. So do you think that, and maybe this has changed now, I don't know, but if you just, we shouldn't be denying people like 
Nigel Lawson or James Dellingpole or, you know, insert sundry other git here. We shouldn't be denying them a platform because actually if they want to go on telly now when the climate is demonstrably changing and it is obviously bad and everyone cares about it and if they want to go on telly and say it's not changing or if it is, it's the fault of the sunspots or the space lizards, let them do it. Like, what's your position on giving them a voice in the first place? Well, I think it it does go on. I mean, if if you if you're sort of seek if you're if you're uh, doing a program that sort of seeks expert opinion, then there's no reason why you would go to that group of people anymore. That's completely gone. Um, if you wanted a little bit of sort of to talk about how uh, things are playing out politically, um, then you might well do that. And and you know there are obviously, for example, right, right at the moment in the in, in in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, there are questions that are being starting to be discussed about what does the economic recovery package look like in the UK? And you might well go to someone, you know, who's in that camp, but an MP um, or a peer, and talk to them about the reasons why Green might not be part of that stimulus package. You know, that would be a fairly reasonable editorial decision uh, to do, and you'd be presenting them as one of a series of, uh, you know, opinions and views on this. But one thing that I've never heard, and so here's my idea uh, for Sustainable, is that I've never heard them get anyone like Nigel Lawson or Matt Ridley on and say, all right, how does it feel to have been wrong? <laughs> that would be the nice framing for the interview that I'd love to hear. Do you right, think we could it. get 40 minutes right. out of Matt Ridley explaining to us why he's wrong, what it feels like? I reckon, I reckon we could give that a shot. I'm sure you could have a lot of fun trying. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Do you know what he is expert in? I found out the other day. Well, coronavirus. Uh, I'm not sure if he's expert in that, but he's definitely definitely expert in pheasant sex. That's his PhD. Oh, that's true. That was his PhD, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I wonder if we could get him on. Let's do it. Let's set up an episode which is ostensibly about, um, you know, bird reproduction and (laughs) (laughs) see if we can get him on. I'm not a pheasant plucker, I'm a pheasant plucker's mate. I'm only plucking pheasants cause a pheasant plucker's late. complaints right we mm. your babble doesn't really get complaints occasionally we do and normally they're because we've been an idiot and we you know we say fair enough we've been an idiot sorry about that um but if you get a complaint coming with someone going uh i think you've done a thing and it annoys me mm. is that a massive pain in the ass because you're like this publicly funded you know thing yeah, it, it it depends. The the, the BBC um, has got a complaints procedure out there, really, as part of its public service remit. You know, everyone in the country pays a licence fee, pays for the BBC, and therefore they have a right to complain if there are things that they don't like. And I think the last time I saw a figure, the BBC gets something like a million complaints a year, something like this. I mean, that may have changed now, but wow. some of them will be fairly... You know, things about, oh, I couldn't receive Radio 4 between uh, 5 o'clock on, uh, you know, Friday or whatever, and it'll be, well, sorry, but the transmitter broke. Or sometimes be, you know, I didn't really like the colour of um, so-and-so's jumper uh, or so-and-so's tie on the TV news. It kind of really annoyed me. Uh, that's the sort of complaint that doesn't tend to go very far through the process. <laughs> it's a multi-stage process, basically. So you have to have some reason for complaining. Um and in the climate change it's, uh, sphere, it's normally about the accuracy uh, of, of, of whatever was, was, was presented. So you generally make your first complaint and a standard letter comes back saying, no, sorry, we don't agree with you because of X, Y, Z. But <laughs> if, you, 
if you if 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 the person complaining pursues it through the process, then it does become if you're if you're if you're in the hot seat a more more of a pain and more of a pain in the, in the bum to be honest. And and I was on the inevitably covering climate change was on the end of several complaints. Uh, I have to say, n- none were ever found against uh, the articles that I'd done. Um, and you know, you, but 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 you have to sort of you have to sort of just go through the process of 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 um, of sort of sometimes you know explaining you know to to to, to editors and so on why you said what you said and why you approached the story as you as you had. And when the, the the really important thing about the complaints procedure is that if there is a judgment that's found against a particular program, then that particular program and other programs know about it. They get they get told about it and the idea is right, here's the mistake, don't repeat it. So one example that comes to mind fairly recently was when uh, Professor Dieter Helm launched his uh, cost of energy uh, review. So this would have been what a uh, couple of years back I, I suppose. Um, and the, you know this was, this was this was a review that um, uh, had been commissioned while Nick Timothy was still in number 10 who was no friend to decarbonisation. so it could have been an awful outcome. It was it was okay. but the BBC uh, radio news um, had announced it by saying something like energy bills have doubled in 10 years. Uh, it just wasn't true. It was never true. Right. It wasn't even in the Helm review. It was just whoever, you know, just completely gone off on one. Um, and so that that complaint, which I think uh, I think it was 10.10 put in, took a while to get through the system. But you can bet your bottom dollar that no BBC journalist is now ever going to go on there and casually say, business, you know, energy bills have doubled in the last 10 years. They're actually going to check their facts. Right. And that's the real utility of the uh, complaints procedure. That's interesting because I'd always thought, like, the damage is done when it's said, right? You know, if someone goes on a Today programme or whatever and, and mm. says something wrong and everyone hears it, and particularly now when you can clip it and retweet it and all the rest of it, then like three months later when, you know, a complaints process closes or, or concludes and says, actually, that was that was wrong, it's kind of horses bolted. But what you're saying is, no, because it is important because if you get a ruling that says never, ever under any circumstances because yeah. any of you lot say this thing again, then potentially yeah. that's that's more important. Yes, it's, yes, ab- absolutely. It's part of the. I mean, people make mistakes. Of course, they do. Journalists are human, and I've certainly made mistakes on air. Um, none that were complained complainable about. Just you know, slips. But that happens, and that's fine. Everyone understands that, I think. But um, yeah, the important thing is just not to get. It. And the complaints procedure is a is a massive part of that. So when those complaints went in, I forget how many there were now about the um, you know Nigel Lawson on today in 2017. You know that was a big deal for the editor and her, her team they had to deal with all that and of course that one was so high profile there was stuff in the media as well which made it even more of a of a pain in the bum here is an illustrated summary of the news it'll be followed by the latest film of events and happenings at home and abroad so one thing the that uh, has probably today. not changed exactly but has been really remarkable in the last few months of lockdown has been the BBC. I don't want to say rehabilitated, right? That's the wrong word because people like the BBC, but Mm. the idea that the BBC does not have a useful function has been properly thrown out the window with all this coronavirus stuff, right? Where it's been basically the place that I think most people have gone. I don't know if that's true. I get a sense to get there, you know, find out what they're doing. And they've been saying coronavirus is bad. Here's all the stuff you got to do. Right. And I, I did wonder whether or not, the BBC 
could stand accused of not doing that for other things, right? So could it be doing much more on climate change? I understand it has to find balance and to balance views out, mm. but given that climate change, the overwhelming scientific severity, could it not be doing more stuff to be saying, right, bloody climate crisis going on across the board? Every, you know, no longer even sort of chucking out the idea of balance because, you know, we're not hearing balanced views on the coronavirus. So why should we hear it on climate change? Yes, it's an interesting interesting question. And uh, um, I think, I mean, there are programmes clearly that that try to do that, that talk about, you know, if you you care about, you know, a low-carbon diet, for example, here are some of the things that you, you should be eating. But, of course, it's not quite quite as high profile and quite as consistent um as the as the messaging that's coming out over coronavirus i think the the reason that um there's a big difference between the two things is basically the time scale um and so the coronavirus is you know it, it we it's it's staying at home today or it's wearing a face mask today or or it is but um if you got into the area of the low carbon transition for example with motoring well it's an electric car but actually you don't you don't need to do it this year it's kind of sometime over the next 10 or 15 years that that's so there's still scope for having programming in it but i don't think it's ever going to come into the news and current affairs programs in the same way that uh, coronavirus does and the things that people need to do on that do you think the bbc will kind of reflect on how basically compliant the british public has been in response to this uh, crisis. Been good, we've been good citizens. We have we? been we good. Have. So we've been good yeah. monkeys, and we've done what Auntie Biggie has told us. Because uh, you, you get the scent, you know. <laughs> I'd, bloody, I'd bloody reflect on that if I had a TV channel. <laughs> <to play. laughs> you get the sense. You get the sense from um, you know from what is briefed out of the government, etc. That they were terrified that people wouldn't do what they were told, mm. and that if they did it, it had to be at a certain point. Blah 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 blah. And I, I just wonder whether the BBC has kind of also felt that a little bit and also felt that about let's not paint ourselves as like the greenies we're not we're not climate advocates we're just reporters Mm. and i just Mm. wonder on both counts whether coming out of this they might be a little bit more emboldened to go well yeah if you kind of present the right (laughs) level of information and you trust people to make good decisions based on that information then yeah we can be a bit more strident because yeah, obviously it is a different timescale, but at the same time, people are understanding that they need to stay at home now to prevent a peak three weeks, six weeks in the future or whatever. And the same sort of thing is at play with climate. And, you know, mm. maybe people will get that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I mean, at times, at times, I think the BBC has looked at its coverage of given issues um, quite critically it, when new information's come to light about public opinion. Um, so rather famously, they had a bit of a crisis about um, seven or eight years ago when they sort of suddenly realised that there was a large chunk of the you know white British population that felt sort of disenfranchised and angry and excluded, um, and they actually did a, a special series on on TV uh, because of it. There was also a lot of. Um, uh, they realised that you know after the after the sort of uh, after after Brexit that they got things a bit wrong. They you know most most BBC journalists come from a certain tradition, um, and the the realisation of where Brexit was heading hadn't necessarily been there in the central newsrooms and so on. So they do have soul searching. I think this is in, this coronavirus is interesting for the BBC in 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 several ways. I mean, one clearly is that um, you know the the day after Boris Johnson came into um, Downing Street, uh, one of the 
things he talked about was looking at the BBC licensing fee and seeing whether that was any more the appropriate model. I mean, I, I, I suspect that we won't actually be having that conversation now. I suspect that one of the things this has done, as, as you said, was spell, <laughs> spell out just how important the BBC is. And actually, the yeah. BBC is being quite important to the government as a conveyor. The BBC isn't obviously just a news and current affairs organisation. It, it, it does have a function as a sort of public service information provider as well. And at a time like this, that really comes to the fore. Switch out, region, switch out, and cut to palace. Um, in terms of how it would change the BBC's coverage of, of, of climate and environment, um, I'm not sure. One of the things that I think has seen uh, sort of, you know, things change and evolve over the last couple of years has been the growing realisation that actually the British public act really does care about this stuff. And, and we've seen the, the opinion survey numbers go up and up about concern on climate change. Finally, the message has got through out into the public domain. I think that actually wind turbines are not controversial. It's only like, you know, 1% of the population that strongly opposes them. So we no longer have to say they're controversial. Um, and, you know, there's stacks and stacks of evidence that actually the UK, you know, Brit Brits are up for this for this green transition. Um, so how how that changes when we come out of coronavirus, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, it may partly depend on what public opinion is as we come out of coronavirus. You know, will people still view climate change as seriously as they did before we went in? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And we haven't really had the sort of definitive well, we can't. We're not far enough into it yet to have the definitive opinion surveys. But you would hope that would have some impact. What's still going to be there when we come out of the you know coronavirus crisis? And crikey, I'm using that phrase lightly, aren't I? When we come out, because no well, one knows what that looks like and how long it's going to take. Yeah, right. But a couple of things will still be there. The government's you know commitment, legal commitment to net zero emissions by 2050 will still be there, and the UK is still going to be the host of COP26. So those two things are still going to very much uh, shape what the government does over the next uh, couple of years. And a lot of coverage, logically, should be oriented around around those things. There are other some very interesting real world stories out there at the moment as well that could could uh, reshape coverage a bit I think I mean what the most interesting to me is what's happening to the oil and gas industry um, mm. you know for four decades in this country we've had the kind of orthodoxy in the treasury and in the conservative party that getting oil and gas out of the ground in the North Sea is good for UK PLC it brings money into government etc et what's well, that phrase George Osborne used Ma maximise uh, economic recovery or something or max what was it Th that's right yeah and max the official policy yeah the official policy on the north sea is still to get every last drop out that right. you can does that really like look like a good policy at the moment i it's hard to say so that's <laughs> going to be a really interesting debate i i, I think over I, and i hope that well bu well business journalists are already uh, across it just in terms of the price but i hope they're going to be across it in terms of the logical future for that industry because it's absolutely debate which debate we should be having in the next couple of years BBC crap, okay? It's gone, okay, get over it, path forward. The BBC is like the stepmom you always wished you had instead of the stepmom you actually ended up with. Like, if Kylie was your stepmom, that'd be pretty cool, right? Instead of um, Fiona Bruce. So we've talked a bit about, about what it was like being at the BBC. Uh, why did you stop? 
And related question, is the sitcom W1A accurate? <laughs> is it Do about you? Know- you? <laughs> is it about- <laughs> well, I've, I've never been offered the head of job of values. Uh, sorry, job as head of values, but uh, I'm sure I'd leap at it if I were. Um, you know, it, it's weird. I moved to New Broadcasting House um, about two months before I left. And so I, I worked in that building the last two months of my BBC career. And every time I go back in there now to do an interview, I can't, I can't stop thinking about W1A. And, I've, you know, friends who still work there <laughs> will, say, will say the same. as, Oh, my God, it's like being on the set of W1A. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not entirely inaccurate put it that way <laughs> in terms of values uh, ian yes no, i'm just thinking no absolutely because if anything it's probably more a values yes. issue you know rather than no, yeah. rather than anything else yes, no i mean yes absolutely um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um yeah so wh- why did i leave well there were a number of reasons really i mean one day when i was writing for the website i was writing an article i think it was about climate change and i literally found myself writing the same headline that I'd written on an article three years previously. And I thought, hmm, OK, maybe maybe, maybe it's time for a change. Is ringing any bells, um, Dave? Yeah, no, I, I hear this. I hear this. <laughs> Dave just quit his job. <laughs> ah, really? Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, exactly. And, and I, I suppose also, I'd clearly what was happening in the UK media on climate change wasn't wasn't great um you know there was a lot of stuff being carried that wasn't accurate and and wasn't evidence-based and was really shaping the political debate and the public debate in a way that wasn't constructive and so rather than being um a sort of passenger on this I, i i sort of started asking myself well is it possible to do something about this is it possible to to change that um uh, so those two things really led me to uh, talk to various, you know, philanthropic funders about setting up uh, the organisation which I which I now run, which has been going for what five and a half six years now, the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. And you know, for the first three four years of of, of our existence, that is largely what we what we tried to do was simply inject evidence into the sort of you know politically and publicly important debate where it, where it had gone missing. So literally saying like. Nigel Lawson's talking bollocks because actually here's some facts, basically. But but find a way of doing <laughs> things like that that actually changes changes things. Right. Right. Anyway, right. So yeah, I mean on on Twitter any day you <laughs> yeah. go on there and it's you know, people rant about everything and blah blah. It doesn't really change anything. You you, you know, you have to you have to find ways of what, basically who needs to hear this and how are you gonna get them to hear it. So tell us a little bit about about your book, about the whole world, the murky world of climate. <laughs> you know, you're like hardcore professional murky climate deniers <laughs> in this in this country. We we have a thing on this podcast where uh, we have a feature called like Inhoff of the Week, uh, and right. that's named after, <laughs> as really I'm sure good. you know, <laughs> Senator Jim Inhoff in America, who who's up there. Um, but what's, I mean, what are you basically, are, as far as I know, is it, yours is the only book that kind of actually says, okay, who are these people? And like, what's their beef and, and where are they going? Yeah, I, I think oh, it is. There have been quite a lot of books about the US side of things, but I, I think mine is the only book about the UK side of things. And so what I did was sort of tw- inter- entwine, try to entwine a few things. So part of it was my sort of own personal story and the, and the story of journalism and how that in some ways cocked up basically uh, for a number of years on climate change um, and and what happened to sort of bring that back to some degree of normality. It was partly the story of the contrarians themselves, the 
just a little bit about who they were and certainly how they interacted with the media. And I also used it to really give a sort of evidence rundown. So I, I sort of broke down the core contrarian arguments into eight so you know climate change isn't happening it's happening but it's not man-made it's happening but it won't be that serious we should just adapt uh climate science is bent we can't afford the green transition um the lights will go out if we pursue renewables and no other countries will will do it if britain leads and i just put for each of those it's amazing to hear it just set out like that because you realize that that you always hear one or more of those (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Like... And I must thank Nigel Lawson for helping me out because um, back in 2008, <laughs> uh, he wrote uh, a book, An Appeal to Reason, and he set out all of these arguments beautifully. Um, <laughs> so it was a fairly easy job, you know, 10 years on to basically look back and say, OK, well, that was wrong and that was wrong and sort of give all the evidence. So um, one of the reviewers on Amazon was nice enough to say, you know, if you want a sort of quick read primer on this stuff, then that's 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 the here it is. But that wasn't I suppose the prime the prime purpose in, in writing the book. So you've been around the block on this quite a long time, as indeed have we all. I think you've been at it a bit yeah. longer. Uh, and you've written the same story three years in a row and you've seen it get worse and worse and worse and that's bad so are you where are you at in your head about all of this we, we were chatting last week to mark linus who's been around a while you probably know mark's stuff yeah, and he's absolutely. got the latest version of his book out which is basically saying the, the science is seriously scary uh, but he still retains optimism so are you where are you at Yep, I would be in the same position as Mark then. I mean, I think you see the incredible ingenuity that uh, that human societies are, are capable of, the, the both the social changes and the technological changes and so on. I mean, it, you know, it was only a few years ago we we you know oil companies were not interested at all in the low carbon transition and now you know most of them are looking are at least looking at what that means and they're having to defend to their shareholders what what they're doing um we now see you know that in in the electricity generation um sector we see renewables being the cheapest form of new generation in most countries we're seeing you know huge strides forward in electric vehicles and so on and so forth public consciousness massive uh, as we were saying earlier you know the, the the concern and the interest in climate change is, is is now far greater than it's ever been and in most countries in the world you can see that the governments at least are, are thinking about a low carbon transition um what's the latest figure we've got 121 countries i think now who said that they like to have a net zero emissions target they'd like to move towards net zero by 2050 now a lot of them haven't done any of the analytical work needed to do that but it, as a statement of political ambition it's not bad and something that we would definitely have not had you know even three or four years ago um in the real economy, we're seeing, you know, company after company uh, making sort of low carbon transition plans. Now, some of them are a lot more solid than others. Some of them are just <laughs> flam. Okay, fine. Uh, but it's, it's but an issue. Five years ago, they weren't even bothering to bullshit yeah, about it. And now, exactly. it's, it's yeah, an iter- yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now the bullshit's out there. And screw. Yeah, so it's an iterative <laughs> process. But uh, yeah, so I think, you know, you have to be you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, you know, what are you going to do? The, if, if you if you preach the you know dis- gospel of despair, what are you going to do tomorrow? Yeah. Babble. That's what you're going to do. Babble. That's a good idea. Babble. You're going to start yeah. a podcast and yeah. moan about stuff. Yeah.
News round news night, I play a website. Tony Arthur, Brian Camp, Spooks and Adam, Adam and Postman Pat Blackadder. Richard, thank you very much for coming to chat to us. Well, not coming to chat to us, for chatting to us from where you live uh, and, uh, <laughs> and spending your time with us and telling us all about your uh, your fascinating career and your book and everything if people want to keep up in touch with you what's the best way you're on the Twitter and stuff yep I'm on Twitter um, I'm um, at underscore Richard Black um, if I'm permitted and the, the organisation is the Energy and Climate uh, intelligence unit uh, eciu.net and if you want to look my book up uh, is you can buy it from amazon or, or the publishers the real press and it's called denied the rise and fall of climate contrarianism nice one superb stuff thank you very much and carry on staying safe thanks for having me on guys it's been a real pleasure So that is just about it for another episode of Babble, 172 of them in the can. Do you know what I'm excited about, Dave? I'm excited about episode 176, so we can play the music called 176 Trombones. I don't know what that music is. Well, you will. In four episodes' time, you'll find out exactly what that music is. Thank you very, very much. Who knows where we we shall be, or whether we should be able to stare lovingly into each other's eyes again, or whether or not we'll still be doing this over a slightly sketchy internet connection. Oh, it turns out my toaster was in the way of the wireless router, in case you were wondering. Such a credit. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like a joke. Isn't. Uh, (laughs) Right. Thank you very, very much to Richard for uh, chatting to us and telling us with all that uh c- glorious clarity Can, don't you love talking to journalists because they just speak in you know entire sentences that make sense yes. it's nice yes um, yeah it's a novelty for me that's yeah <laughs> i'll set them up you knock them out of the park thank you to, thank you to richard for yeah for talking to us about all that and uh, for writing his book go and check it out um and for running ecru that organization what he mentioned go and check them out too they've got a um i should have said this they've got a newsletter that you can subscribe to that is very good and contains every day one number if you like if you're a cretin all this is basically what the, the newsletter is saying if you're a cretin and you can only remember one thing here's a number that you need to remember uh, and i like that about the newsletter so i recommend it is it the same number every time <laughs> yeah it's just it's just 17 <laughs> just time. remember 17 <laughs> yeah very good. Thank you to uh, everyone who gets in touch with us and tells us how much they like or, you know, have constructive feedback on the show. You can do likewise by emailing us to hello at sustainababble.fish. You can find us on the Facebook at Sustainababble um, or you can just search for us on the Twitter at The Babble Wagon. Did I get that right? Pretty much something like that. I think so. Um, also, thank you to the wonderful Dickie Moore for the music that, as always, starts, ends and intertwinkles the podcasts and to the legendary Arthur Stovall for the logo, What Adorns It and our merch and thank you to everyone who chucks in a couple of quids to keep the babble going by sponsoring us on patreon that's www.patreon.com slash sustainababble massively appreciated couldn't do this without you if you want to join them please do very good the full house of housekeeping announcements congratulations dave you've clearly you've been using your lockdown to practice that haven't you because that's two episodes now where you haven't tripped up yeah, no, I have. I've all I've done in the morning. I've got up. Um, I've not done anything apart from <laughs> repeating how to get in contact with Sustainable Babble. That's it. That is my life. That is my life. 
good. Right, see you next week. Keep safe. Love you loads. Bye. Bye. Roger Platt was the hurdles guy from the 90s. It's not him.